It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 23rd of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Public Expenditure came before the Dáil last Wednesday to explain undeclared election expenses, a mistake that was not in line with ethics legislation. Pascal Donoghue apologised for not meeting the standards expected of people in public office, explaining how he received a donation of 11 700 euro from businessman Michael Stone to put up and take down posters during the 2016 general election campaign. The minister's statement resulted in even more questions being asked and much criticism over his answers, not addressing many of what people said were straightforward questions that had already been asked of him. Pascal Donoghue will hope to close this controversy down this week when once again he'll come before the House. That the earliest opportunity uh, I want to make a uh, further statement on the matter and uh, uh, ensure that the information that I am sharing is as accurate as possible. And that opportunity will pose itself tomorrow in uh, the Dáil. Let's uh, begin uh, this morning by speaking with Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy, a TD for Cavan Monaghan and Fine Gael TD for Mayo Michael Ring. A very good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Michael Ring, do you believe there's a, a witch hunt on here? I do indeed, I do, I do. I think it's a witch hunt by Sinn Féin and other opposition parties in the Dáil. I think Pascal Donoghue has been a tremendous Minister for Finance. Yes, he made a mistake. Yes, he put up his hands. Yes, he'll come back into the Dáil tomorrow and he'll outline, uh, you know, what, he, what I, I suppose he, he had to go back and recollect what had happened in that election. That election wasn't uh, the last election. That was election in 2016. And I, I have a wonderful time for, for Pascal Donoghue. I worked with him. I, I, I was a minister in, in the same department I see the way that man had worked. He's there since 2011. He has helped to, 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 to reform this country again, uh, to bring it back to full employment. He dealt with the COVID. Uh, when, when the businesses were under pressure, he was the minister that really, really worked hard to help businesses, help families, help this country to get through COVID. And yes, he made a mistake, put up his hand. And I don't believe, and I listen to people in my constituency all over the weekend, and they're actually angered and annoyed that people would be spending so much time in the 
Paul Ayrton talking about somebody that paid for a few posters for a man and that's what SIPO uh, is there for they will investigate this they will give their report but no we have the, the Sinn Féin we have all the other parties in the all they want answers and Pascal Dunne who will give these answers tomorrow he, would, he did put up his hand he said he was sorry made a mistake and it was only over putting up a few posters putting, up, putting them up and taking them down I take it he has uh, the full support of uh, government given that he's given his explanations to both the Taoiseach and uh, the Taunashe and uh, both Leo Bradker and Michal Martin say that he has their support. Yes, he has. He has the support of, of, of Fianna Fáil, the Greens, but most of all he has the support of the Fine Gael party to a man and a woman. Everybody is supporting off Pascal. Everybody, everybody, everybody wants him to stay and we don't want to see anything happening. And what we don't want, Michael, what we don't want to see again and we had this before. We had this witch hunt and it all before in relation to Francis Fitzgerald, in relation to Phil Hogan, in relation to Derek Hillary. And then we find Francis Fitzgerald was proven innocent. And what has happened? She had lost her jo- job because the witch hunt there put her out, out of her job and when her job had gone and she didn't get her job back. Same thing with Phil Hogan. When we had a great man in Europe, a great commissioner doing a great job for this country, we let her get the best portfolio in the whole of Europe and he went to the courts along with Dara Caleri. Uh, no conviction. Uh, they were found innocent. No job for, for Phil Hogan. No job for Dara Caleri. It's not right, and these witch hunts have to stop. If we're putting state agencies in place, people like SIPO, they should be let investigated. When they bring back their report, if there's a problem, that's then when the opposition should come in. But no, they want two witch hunts. They want the SIPO to be investigating it, and they want it all to be investigating it. They can't have it both ways, and they shouldn't have it both ways. Pascal Donoghue is an honest, decent, hard-working TD, decent man, did nothing wrong, and all I'm saying, he did make a mistake. He's put up his hand and he has acknowledged mm. he has made a mistake. He will come back to the doll tomorrow. He will explain what has happened and I think this will finish after tomorrow. Alright, uh, let's go to Matt Carthy because uh, Sinn Féin uh, were not going to accept uh, the situation as it was and I think Mairead Farrell and Pierce Doherty really pushed for the Minister to come back in and make a, a second statement. He had said it on Wednesday. That was the end of the matter until he was asked these questions by SIPO but he'll be back in front of uh, the doll on Tuesday. By the sounds uh, of things, uh, this isn't going to result in, in any sanction whatsoever for Pascal Donoghue. Well, first of all, there's so many factual inaccuracies in a very short statement from Michael Ring there that I won't even um, start on that, but I'll refer to one. Unfortunately, Pascal Donoghue hasn't put his hands up. His story has been evolving over the past week, um, and that is following um, his knowledge of the fact that uh, he received a corporate donation essentially in 2016 that he would have been aware of, but it was brought to his attention in 2017. He took no action whatsoever. And when members of the media put specific questions to him in relation to these issues, um, as close as November of last year, he told them that there were no issues that needed to be addressed. And the mm. fact is that he only took any action whatsoever. Do you not believe him? Do you not believe that that's what he thought, that he thought uh, that the cost of the posters was below that €1,000 limit and that he wasn't factoring in the cost of the van? No, um, because he, at least he should have known because he's the minister with responsibility for the legislation that oversees all of these these matters. And it is very clear and election candidates and um, are told before and after um, by SIPO the very detailed nature of the laws and regulations and guidelines that we're expected 
to adhere to. And it, it would I seem as though the work that was done would ordinarily cost around 5000 instead of a, a 1100 uh, But is it the Minister's responsibility to know the commercial value uh, and not just uh, uh, declare what has been given, which was the 1100 Yes, it is. The law is very clear on that, that it is the responsibility of the candidate in the first instance and to complete their declaration um, as, as frankly as possible and when matters are brought to their attention to correct mm. those records as speedily as possible. None of those things have happened. In fact, in Pascal Donoghue, unless the story changes again tomorrow, has still been continuing with a narrative that is simply incredible. It is, an, it is not believable by anybody who has any experience of how elections operate. Now, I can understand how some of Michael's constituents might be frustrated by all of this because it does appear on the face of it to be a simple issue of posters being erected and whether or not um, uh, an exact value was put on the form. But the reason why SIPU legislation is in place, the reason why these guidelines are in place, is so that when decisions are made by government, particularly in respect to appointments to state bodies or the awarding of government contracts that can sometimes be worth millions of euros, that the public will know whether or not the beneficiaries of those contracts and those appointments had previously made substantial financial contributions to senior politicians. Mm. In this instance, the individual involved did um, did secure government contracts and, de- and was appointed to state boards. And the public weren't aware that of the fact that he had made what in real terms was a very substantial contribution to the election campaign of so, the for finance at the time. So to put it bluntly, you're asking if uh, you're asking if there was a quid pro quo here, if uh, backs were scratched. No, what I'm asking for is a full account on the part of Pascal Donoghue as to what happened in a believable manner. So in the right. first instance, the value of the contribution right. in 2016. But, I mean, all of that has been explained to some degree, uh, and that probably won't change. Uh, there is the question about the last general election then in 2020, uh, and it seems that the Minister has explained that to the party leaders, and they're satisfied with that explanation. Well, we'll see what he says before the doll tomorrow, but I do think that it is very questionable the fact that he came before the doll last week. He outlined, for example, the purchase of Mr Stone of some Fine Gael national draw tickets. He made no reference to the 2020 general election campaign, despite the fact that he was asked um, on quite a number of occasions, particularly by mm. Pierce Doherty, in that respect. Yeah. So it is unbelievable, again, that Pascal would have information in respect of the 2020 election. Okay, but assumably that's why he couldn't make the statement on Thursday and he's had to check his records, he's coming back and undoubtedly the Minister will address that tomorrow because it's to be questions and answers. Let me go back to Michael Ring if I can uh, because there is that question of putting his hands up. He knew in 2017, as Matt Carthy says, and then he was asked about it uh, by journalists until eventually... Uh, some would say uh, he had no option but to come forward with this information. Yeah, yeah but, but look at Michael. Let's ask Matt now and let him... He's such a great man now uh, asking uh, Pascal Donoghue to correct the record. Sipo had to write three times to, to, to Mary Lou MacDonald, the leader of the Sinn Féin party, over a 6,000 sterling cheque. An opinion poll that got done in, in England. They couldn't get it done in Ireland. They had to get it done in England. And three times they had to... to, to. Should Mary Lou MacDonald be coming before the doll tomorrow and explaining why that cheque and why they had Sipo had to write three times to them? And that was found under Freedom of Information this week. And really, really, you know, I listen about business people and about state boards. I was a minister. I was a minister for nine and a half years. 
many, many business people uh, we need to put them on state boards. We cannot actually get people on state boards don't want to go on to state boards. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you what state boards are full of now. They're full of county managers. They're full of secretary generals, full of civil servants. And we need business people. We need people of stature, that, that, that people that are in business. We need a different variety of people to be on state boards, to be able to give their advice, okay. to give their... The, but can I ask thing, you... Can I ask you about Mary Lou MacDonald um, uh, and whether it would make any difference or not if Mary Lou MacDonald or Sinn Féin breached ethics legislation in terms of how you look at the questions that are being asked of Pascal Donoghue. Uh, I'm not sure how people are hearing it, but to me it sounds as though you're saying two wrongs make a right. Are you asking me that? Yes. Yes, Michael Ring. No, 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 two wrongs don't make a right. Pascal Donoghue came in and put his hand up. Sinn Féin denied it, and, and they had to correct the records. They denied it. But, but what's, what, what's the Sinn Féin ethics questions got to do with Mary... got to do with Pascal Donoghue's questions? Of course it has to do with Pascal Donoghue's questions. But that's like saying two wrongs make a right. No, it's not. You, you have somebody in here throwing, throwing muck at, 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 at Pascal Donoghue. And when then, the minute I ask a question about Sinn Féin, when they did wrong... You're like saying it's okay, and Matt Carthy is saying it's okay. It's not okay. I'm, no, I didn't wrongs, say it was okay. I said, I said no whether she did or whether tomorrow. she didn't. She should explain the Sinn Féin position. She should explain. Okay, but that. what I'm saying to you is, it's a separate issue. Whether whether there are questions or not, it's a separate issue. Uh, it's not relevant to the questions being put to the minister, is it? Well, the minister will come in tomorrow and he will explain his case. The minister came in last week, okay. and to the best of his recollection, he tried to 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 to, to explain what had happened. Okay, well, it was two elections ago, and to be fair, this this simple row, and I hope your listeners will be listening to this this morning, this is over a few posters, and I'm not going to uh, allow, and I hope that Fine Gael don't allow, Fianna Fáil don't allow, and uh, the, the Greens don't allow, and any decent person in Dáil Lairdin will allow Pascal Donoghue to lose his job, simply okay. because... Allow me to go back to Matt Carthy then with the questions to and took them down you've and asked of his party. He put up his hand, okay. said, I made a mistake, and... Sinn Féin never make mistakes, well, l- of course. Well, let's see, let's see what Matt Carty has to say about those mistakes, because there was obviously a, a mistake uh, with uh, that uh, opinion poll. I don't think Sinn Féin had realised it hadn't been declared, or at least that's what Sinn Féin had said, until uh, they were asked about it by the Irish Times. That's correct. And as soon as we were asked about it, we corrected the uh, I- issue. And if you want to compare that to the Pascal Donoghue... so did Pascal Donoghue. When an issue was brought to Pascal Donoghue last November, he told the media that there was no story there at all. And it was only when a complaint to SIPO was actually ma- made that he began to... Um, I corrected it. A like narrative, like of course... Just to say to one thing, Michael, of course we need people from diverse backgrounds on state bodies. But we also need, and the public have a right to know, that if people are being appointed to state bodies, whether or not they've made financial contributions to senior members of government parties. That goes to... There's the no question of that here, though, and don't be saying why that. Why we have the ethics legislation. And that goes to the heart of many of the problems that we have in our society, because historically, Fianna mm. Fáil and Fianna Gael governments made these appointments, awarded states... OK, just stop there, Matt, if you can. Michael, Michael, Ring said there's no, Michael Ring said there's no question of that. There's no question of Michael Stone uh, making donations to Pascal Donoghue, I think is what was meant. Well, he did make a donation mm. to Pascal, Pascal Donoghue. Now, of course, Pascal's claim and it was to the Fianna Gael party and his constituency against right. that is in direct contravention to what the SIPO rules state. But the rules are in place 
for full transparency and accountability. And the least that people could expect is that the minister... That well, then let's simple investigators, not Sinn Féin and not independent and at all, our other parties. How long will a simple investigation take? It's like, you know, it's like if your programme this morning, if somebody commits a murder in this country, and the programme that we're on this morning starts discussing it, and then the Gardaí at the courts are not able to deal with it. Sipo is there to investigate complaints. Pascal Donoghue de- dealt with his complaint. Okay. The minister went in, he corrected the records last week, and this is still on the, over a few posters. A man putting up a few well, posters and taking them around. Well, I know Pascal Donoghue. He's a man of quality. He's a man of decency. He's a man that has served this country well. And I saw that man put early morning, late nights, for the sake of this country. And I saw the sacrifices he's made, that his family made. Can I, I ask don't you? Think a good man like Pascal Donoghue should be destroyed. Michael by, Ring. Uh, by somebody putting up a few posters for him. Would, 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 would you. Um Refer to Damien English in the same way. Would you describe him in the same way? No, I wouldn't. Damien English made a big mistake. Damien English put something on the farm that he shouldn't have, and he 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 paid a price for it. Do you believe that was a lie? And I kind of put him in the same. Do you you believe that Damien English lied to Mead County Council? Intentionally, knowingly lied to Mead County Council. I I said that. That uh, I can't defend that. Okay. Uh, do you believe uh, that there's a place in your party for somebody who's acted that way? He's made a mistake. He's paid a big price for it. And again, that's been investigated now by SEPO and we wait and see the results of that. And when that decision is made, I don't jump to conclusions. I believe in giving people an opportunity, giving them the right, giving them the right to defend themselves. Damien English made a very serious mistake as far as I'm concerned and uh, a very good man, a very good okay, minister uh, and he accepts that himself. Uh, I took it to mean that you said uh, that you feel that Damien English, you believe that Damien English knowingly, intentionally lied to Mead County Council. That's the way it looks to me. And, yeah. and he, okay. he, when that was brought to his attention, he resigned. So are, he are, you, are you comfortable with your party having a, a place for somebody who has acted that way? I, I am going to wait to see to get the full facts of this I mean I'm only I'm only listening to what happened on the media and I actually I did meet Damien Ings last week I didn't get an opportunity to speak to him on it uh, I did ring him uh, you know I was sorry to see him losing his position but he, he look at he accepted he did wrong and he's paying a big price for that now mm, OK uh, is this political opportunism on the part of Sinn Féin Matt Carthy because uh, I mean it's obviously playing out very well for you and very badly for Fine Gael, looking at the latest opinion polls? No, well, to be quite frank about it, Michael, I would prefer to be talking to you this morning about the Sinn Féin private members' motion this week, which is to call on government to instruct Kielce to stop their proposed sell-off of thousands of acres of Irish land to a British investment fund, or to talk to you about the housing crisis, or to talk yes. to you okay. um, the health I think everybody crisis. would prefer that, yeah. Is, the difficulty is that this goes to the heart of why we have so many crises in our society, because so many decisions that affect hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Irish people are all too often seen to be made at the behest of vested interests, those people who have the inside track, as opposed to what's in the best... Look at Matt, what you don't like in this country, you don't like business people, you don't like people making profit, you don't like people creating jobs. I like business people, I like people creating jobs, and I like to see that... And this is a debate that will continue on the floor of Dáil Éireann. 
sometimes I get sick of listening to Sinn Féin okay. they have all the answers and you had the opportunity in the last election and the election before that to go into government and there was enough of the left there I don't know who government. gave them the you opportunity but we'll, 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 we'll probably run away from it again the we, next time we'll leave it there thank you both very much indeed for joining us we've run over time thank you both uh, for taking the time to be with us Michael Ring Fine Gael TD for Mayo along with Matt Carty who's a Sinn Féin TD for Kevin Monaghan Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, a very disturbing report on mental health today from uh, the Mental Health uh, Commission, uh, which says more than 100 mentally ill children, including some on medication, were left for up to two years without care by the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, or CAMS. An interim report from the Mental Health Commission calls for immediate regulation, and the Chief Inspector, Susan Finnerty, says that there needs to be an immediate review of all cases where a child has not been seen for six months or more with particular urgency to identify open cases of children who have been lost to follow up uh, to uh, see uh, how they are doing because they have been forgotten about a a system that uh, it seems is failing many of our our children in this country. Uh, This week and coincidentally Pieta House is launching its biannual Signs of Suicide campaign and if uh, you need any understanding of the extent of mental health problems in this country. You just need to look at how busy Pieta House has been in the course of the last year. They received 99,042 calls and texts and delivered 51,000 hours of therapy to people. Let's speak uh, to the chief fundraiser with Pieta House, Tom McAvoy, who's on uh, the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Tom, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, uh, And uh, you're reaching out to people this week uh, who may not uh, have seen any problems uh, in uh, their family, uh, but perhaps they're problems that uh, they could look out for uh, and uh, uh, certainly could change the course of somebody's direction. Thanks, Michael, for having Pieta on this morning. Uh, We're delighted to be able to absolutely uh, connect with the the community in this way with our uh, initiative called Know the Signs of Suicide uh, for this week. So we're trying to focus in on, uh, I suppose, trying to get people to understand that by observing signs in one another, uh, and signs is an acronym, the word signs we use, S-I-G-N-S, to describe perhaps how uh, you know we can look out for one another in a very, very simplistic way, mm. but, but really in a truly, uh, you know, a way that, that could change somebody's life uh, forever by observing signs. And the acronym stands for S is sleep disturbance. We know when people are, you know, finding it very difficult to rest or to sleep at night, uh, something is, you know, causing that to to perhaps manifest itself through sleep sleep disturbance. The word, uh, the letter I is isolation. People are isolating themselves, maybe, you know, trying to distance themselves from their social circles, their family perhaps, and maybe looking for reasons or excuses not to come into company and maybe even, you know, deciding not to come into work uh, sometimes. 
So uh, G uh, is standing for giving away possessions. Mm. Uh, this can be people sorting themselves out or, you know, deciding that they don't need the precious items that they used to adore and, um, you know, sorti- sorting the, the, the stuff that they want somebody else to have out. Uh, the letter N stands for no interest in anything. And that means people are lethargic, they're really just, you know, they're they're absolutely, when, when stuff really rocked their boat and they would love to hear, maybe go, go to concerts or to music or to go to, you know, basic stuff, uh, you know, their their interests, uh, their, you, you notice that they're, they've no interest in anything mm, anymore. No enthusiasm. And then the, mm. and then the final uh, letter S in the word signs uh, says speaking of no future and uh, that's the language of suicide. Uh, speaking of no future, you know, I, I'm not needed anymore or I, I can't see a reason to continue on or, you know, uh, phrases like that that are being bandied about that you you start to observe, God, this is actually starting to, to I, I'm starting mm-hmm. to hear more of this. And it, so, it could be any of those signs or a combination yeah. of all, all well, five. a combination of rather than yeah. isolated mm-hmm. because we can all have sleep disturbance, we can all have mm-hmm. all of that. But essentially, if there are a combination, but then we ask people to really start honing in and observing because those 99,000 calls and texts that you refer to earlier, Michael... It's incredible. It's shocking. And I'm sure you've had many repeat callers, but even at that, it really is a shocking amount of calls. Yeah, a a lot of the calls are uh, from individuals uh, who perhaps, A, have, you know decided to take that real brave move of lifting the phone to Pieta on our 1800-247-247 number. That is a free phone helpline being manned by fully qualified therapists. We have, I think, 28 therapists on that uh, phone line uh, now working on it around the clock, 24-7, including Christmas Day. So we we see quite a lot of uh, individuals Mm -hmm. in a distressed state, uh, but essentially... Isn't that so brave of them to make that move, to make that call and try to get help for themselves? And perhaps the reason why they did that was somebody observed them and said, look, I think we need to seek help or you really need, you know, to maybe look at at, uh, how you can help yourself. And a a very hard call to make, uh, I'm sure, for all of uh, those people. It's a number that's easy to remember because it's open 24-7, 247 of the people who contact you are under the age of 18. Uh, is uh, that is a result, do you think, of poor mental health services in this country? Well, what I would say is that uh, number or that figure uh, has increased slightly over the last uh, couple of years. However, it, it has been uh, our observation over the years that um, you know lots of uh, young people are seeking help. Uh, they, they are looking out uh, you know, for for reasons to to continue living, uh, and that is really a positive. Um, you know, obviously we can all improve our services, and there are uh, you know th- there are gaps perhaps which PA to help to fill in the immediate uh, uh, you know right. situation. However, you know, in a long term situation, um, we are really you know we we are. Uh, the specialist in suicide prevention uh, for for the work that we do, and 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 35% of our 
uh, eight and a half thousand people who saw who came to our services last year uh, were eighteen and under, and in fact, uh, we we saw over a hundred of those who were twelve and under. So, you, you must be really stretched, though. I mean, if you're seeing so many people, are you able to help people if uh, people are worried about their children, let's say, and there's gaps in the service, as we're hearing this morning, and I think we've been hearing for uh, the last 30 or 40 years, for that matter, Tom. But if people are looking for help and they're not sure where to turn to, can Pieta accommodate them? Yes, we can, uh, is, the, is the quick answer. Uh, anybody who is concerned about a loved one, uh, a young family member or friend, um, you know, th- there is there should be no reason not to lift the phone to our helpline uh, and to to find out are we the right service, are we the right fit for that uh, for that person? And we we do an assessment when somebody comes into Pieta uh, to find out, you know, is our service suited to their need? And likewise, they can see are are we suited to them? Mm. And uh, and of all ages. Most, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Every age cohort comes to Pieta from people in, uh, you know, under a, 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 a from eight year olds up to eight year olds is what we say. Mm. So we see across the whole gambit, and we are particularly very, very keen to see, um, you know, eighteen, eighteen under at the moment because okay. there is a high level of anxiety in our community and. Uh, you know, people are looking out and reaching out for help. So uh, there is always yeah. hope and there's always help there. Our 24-7 crisis helpline, 1800-247-247. If you stick that on your phone after this interview, we'd be so delighted that you would have it perhaps when you need it. And that's why there is such great support always, I think, for Pieta House. Uh, and we'll remind people of uh, the five signs, sleep disturbance, isolation, giving away possessions, no interest in anything, speaking of no future, should raise a red flag in your mind uh, and maybe look for uh, advice uh, and that help available on your 24-7 line, one 247 Tom, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today. Tom McAvoy is fundraising manager with Pieta House. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now you can have all the laws in the world, but what's the point in them if uh, they're not enforced? I'm sure you've heard that said uh, a million times before. We're going to hear it said again. Let's speak to Sean McNamara, who is the sheep chairperson with the IS, a bigger part of the ICSA, the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association. Good morning to you, Sean, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. You do believe we knew we need new laws, new legislation in relation to dog control, uh, but things would be a lot better than they are if we were to enforce existing legislation. That is so, Mike Liver. If we enforce existing legislation, things would be a lot better. Like we see that there's no fines for anyone with dogs running around and everything, but and all oh, getting away with like, <coughs> excuse me, but um, we need tough, we need the tougher, tougher penalties than the people that are already there. And mm. uh, is it possible to enforce the law? It is, but the only biggest problem is. <laughs> The only biggest problem is, Michael, that there isn't enough of dog wardens out there. Like, there's one dog warden per county. It needs at least two or three dog wardens per county. It's the only way this will work. And if they bring in tougher legislation, tougher penalties, this will pay for the dog wardens of the county. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, One dog warden uh, per 50,000 sheep, is it? Uh, You said there's 50 dog wardens, but uh, you're estimating that there's uh, 500,000 uh, dogs in the country. I'm sorry, I think I said sheep there. One dog warden per 50,000 dogs in the country. 
yeah, that's what's going on. Like, and, and like, like, how can you manage that? Like, you know what I mean? And like, that's only a rough estimate of five hundred thousand dollars. It could be that more thousand, or they could. That's only a rough estimate. Like, there's only two hundred thousand licenses, but we reckon there's what. There's 500,000 plus thousand in the country. So, so do you reckon there's 300,000? If you were a woman, you couldn't police all that. Like, you know but do I mean? you believe there's 300,000 dogs in the country that don't have a licence? Oh, definitely there is, yeah. Really? Definitely there's at least 300,000 dogs in the country that has the licence. A lot of people doesn't bother the licence at all, as far as I can see. Um, and a lot of people doesn't bother chipping their dogs, and that's what the problem is laying. Like, we mm. see it several times, uh, sheep attacks on sheep. And when the farmer goes to eat the chip in the out, there's no chip in them, so they get, they have nowhere to go. Mm. So, uh, is that the starting point for enforcing the laws that are already in place? Definitely. We want to see the hot dogs are chipped. I know the law came in in 2015, but we want to enforce it. And the, the way I'd be looking at it is that there's enough of dog wardens around. Um, to be able to get dogs every room on the road and follow your dog and follow you into a house and see if the dog chipped and licensed and the whole lot. There could be a lot more done. Like, there's a lot of dogs. Like, I just see it, there's a lot of dogs room on the road there and just willingly and not all of them dogs. Some of them dogs will do harm and that's what the problem is like. Well, yeah, I think it's clear to all of us that all dogs are dangerous or can be dangerous after... Uh, what we saw in uh, County Waterford that inquest last week and the death of that, that infant serious. Mio O'Connell. I mean, that was just a, a tiny little dog, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. That yeah. was serious. Now, like you know what I mean. And that yeah. there's going to be more of that. Like you know what I mean. If this, if we don't, it's not no one cheap. If we don't yeah. control our dogs, there's going to be more of that because, um, <clears throat> like most dogs are okay, but. The biggest problem is, too is when dogs get into a pack to uh, do a lot of harm in a very short time. Mm-hmm. Well, undoubtedly so. Uh, I mean, they uh, really can leave carnage after them, as you and any sheep farmer knows at this stage, uh, because uh, this has become commonplace now, and it's something that is uh, commonplace not just over the last year or two. It's been commonplace for years on end. Yeah, well, I'm... Four year sheep chairman, I say, and they started in started the chairmanship and tried to get the dog dogs changed, mm. and it's going from year to year, and there's still nothing being done about it. Now, at the moment, they're talking about it, but yeah. this is the way it goes on. They well, talk the, about it. Well, the two ministers set up a, a working group, uh, Charlie McConnell and um, Heather Humphreys met, and they've set up a, a working group. They did that a few weeks ago. They said they'd hoped that the working group would report within it a few weeks. So uh, I take it their report and recommendations are, are imminent. Uh, what do you hope to hear from them? Well, the biggest thing I hope to hear from them that um, uh, dog owners, anyone with dogs, and Art and being by the laws will be be tougher penalties on them, and that, that's a big thing. And that will deter a lot. I think a lot of sheep kills, and we said that young child that was killed, and the whole lot that would deter a lot. Of that think that put an end to a lot of that. If there's a tougher penalty, if you got if they got a dog roam on the road or whatever, get powers that they could be lifted or whatever, and find every five hundred thousand euros. Then people wouldn't be long waiting up, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. something that you don't uh, brush off very quickly. Uh, and what what about uh, the uh, dangerous breeds? Uh, because that's to be part of it. Michal Martin was talking about banning some of uh, these dangerous breeds. Is that something that you'd support, or have you got any thoughts on that? Well, the way I can see it, as far as I can see, every dog is a dangerous breed. You know what I mean? Um... 
any dog will attack. I've seen it the Mionis and I've seen terriers attacking sheep. I've seen I've seen Alsatians. I've seen collie dogs. So I wonder what what is the dangerous breed. You know what I mean? That's why I look at. Okay. All right. Well, undoubtedly we'll have uh, these recommendations in the coming weeks uh, and uh, I'm sure there'll be lots more talk uh, about changes and if they are to be implemented and enforced. We leave there for the moment, O'Shawn. Thank you indeed for taking the time to speak to us on the programme today. It's much appreciated. Sean McNamara is the Sheep Chair with the ICSA. Now, let me bring you some of the comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Great to be getting so many comments so early in the programme. Thanks if you have been in touch. Somebody else, uh, somebody in touch saying, uh, does Michael Ring think his party uh, wouldn't be witch hunting if it was a politician from another party that had messed up as badly as Pascal Donoghue did. That's uh, John in Drogheda. Thanks for that, John. Uh, another text from Margaret. These are WhatsApp messages that are coming to us. Margaret says, Michael, I, I can't comment uh, about what Pascal Donoghue did with his election posters, but this I do know. He's one heck of a great minister and we cannot afford to lose him. Recognised in Europe and this country is bad enough as it is. Let Pascal Donoghue make a speech in the Dáil tomorrow, but let's keep clear heads and keep this great minister uh, in office. Thank you indeed, Margaret, uh, for that. Matt Carthy was very composed in the interview this morning, says one of our, our listeners, and gave uh, an educated interview. <laughs> I think this is a Sinn Féin supporter. Declan, thank you for your message. Uh, he didn't uh, quite feel the same about <laughs> Michael Ring. He said, Michael Ring was shouting over Matt Carthy, uh, and he must have said Pascal held his hands up ten times. These spoofers need to go. Thank you, Declan, for that uh, uh, Another uh, text uh, from somebody uh, in relation to that as well who says all TDs are answerable for their actions. The lawmakers must uphold the law. As for Phil Hogan, well, he did break COVID rules. What good? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Ring and all the boys are well paid for their jobs and their expenses are obscene. Their daily clock-in fee is higher than the job seekers allowance, says our caller. Well, thank you indeed for making your thoughts known with us and uh, taking the time uh, to to send a text or call us if you would like to make comment on the programme yourself and you haven't or you'd like to make another call or whatever our number is 041 983 2000 as always we'd love to hear from you if you want to ring us it's 041 983 2000 you can text or whatsapp us on 086 1800 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the National Council for the Blind in Ireland, together with uh, the Irish Guide Dogs for the Blind and the Irish Wheelchair Association, have come together once again to call on the Minister for Transport uh, to enact legislation to do with e-scooters. And let's hear a little bit more. June Tinsley is Head of Communications and Advocacy with the NCBI. Good morning, June. Thanks for joining us, as always, on the programme uh, today. Um, I, I think uh, we've been talking about this for a very long time. Why is the legislation not in place? You're right, Michael. We've, we've spoken about this numerous times. And I think the reality is that the legislation is just crawling through the Oireachtas. Um, we're now at the final hurdle, which we still don't have a date when it will be at report stage. And I suppose what NCBI, IWA and the guide dogs are doing this week is really now that the Shannon is back to kind of put it back on the priority list of the minister to make sure that the legislation does pass and that he does put in um, amendments to introduce minimum safety standards for the use of e-scooters for 
private use and for the shared themes that will be propping up throughout our cities. Mm. Um, we, but, we know e-scooters are getting more and more popular. Well, I was just going to say, we, we know that when we started right. talking... Sorry, John, I was just going to say that. But we know that when we started talking about this, there was quite a few of them, but there's been quite a, a few more since then. And as time goes on, more and more people are using e-scooters. Yes, exactly. They're just becoming such a, a popular mode of transport, but there is no clear rules and regulations around their usage for the protection of the, the rider and obviously for individuals who are blind or vision impaired. Mm. There are some basic things that we would like to see, such as the ban on their use on footpaths uh, it is leading to collisions or near misses for individuals. Um, and just for safety reasons, we believe that they should not be used on footpaths because we know they, go, they can go at a, a fair speed um, and it is very startling and disorientating for individuals, particularly those who can't see them approach and they are largely silent vehicles. Mm. So um, it is leading to, as I said, collisions and near misses. Will that not continue after the legislation uh, is enacted? Uh, is it not a situation where there will be rules, there will be regulations uh, and perhaps implementation of all of those things uh, for vehicles that go over 25 kilometres an hour? Um, well, I suppose what we're asking for is that the speed limit would be less than 25 kilometres per hour because that, that is a, a fair speed that people are, are mm. travelling at, um, especially if there isn't any clear um, safety requirements for, for the rider even to, to wear helmets. No helmet, um, no high-vis, go on the path, go wherever you want, go up the wrong way of a one-way street if that's what you feel like doing. At, at the minute, it is a total free-for-all. So yeah. we're kind of saying... We really need some clear rules and regulations for the protection of pedestrians and um, to, for those who will be enforcing it, whether it's the Gardaí or the local authorities, um, that there needs to be clear rules and regulations. The Minister also last week announced the um, rollout of the e-vehicle charging infrastructure, which is totally required, particularly with the increased use of e-vehicle cars and things like that. But e-scooters are part of that e-infrastructure. Um, e so we need to make sure that the, the rules and regulations are there. It can only be there if the legislation passes um, and it needs to be done. Now, Shannon is back mm. and put, his, put in these last-minute amendments to, to protect the, the rider and the pedestrian. You wouldn't see mobility scooters in the same light, would you? Um, no, because the, the, the speed limit attached to mobility scooters are obviously far, far less mm. um, than is it, is it the people driving them, though, who have a different attitude as well? Um Possibly, and yeah. I suppose mm-hmm. the reality is if individuals sign up to um, maybe the, the rental schemes that will be operational throughout the country, um, that there should be an onus on the rental schemes to make sure that those using their schemes have a, an understanding of the rules and the roles uh, so that individuals protect themselves. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The riders, but also the pedestrians. Okay. Um, should there be an age limit on using e-scooters? Uh, yeah, we believe that it should be 16 uh, mm. because that would show some level of competency in understanding of the rules of the road, yeah. similar to what you have with um, mopeds and things like yeah, that. Yeah, you get a motorbike, uh, a small uh, CC. Yeah, yeah. Mm. exactly. So there, ha- there has to be something c- comparable to that um, in terms of registration and uh, tax and insurance and just level of maturity to, to know how to use these vehicles which operate at mm. speed. And should, um, should, and should drivers then be tested on the rules of the road? Um, well, I suppose if there's some level of registration system, such as a, have a provisional licence, mm. then there, there would be a, a basic proof that they have a, a knowledge of the rules of the road um, and that there would definitely be, a, as I said, a, a ban for use on, on footpaths mm. and clear designated parking bays so that um, e-scooters wouldn't be propped up against trees or poles, which then pose as trip hazards for individuals who are blind or vision impaired. Right. Um, and mm. As I said, the, the other thing we'd, we'd love to see is um, sound attached to the e-scooters to be installed so that individuals can hear them coming. Oh, right, yeah, sorry, yeah, because they're very silent, yeah, yeah, uh, yes, uh, and yeah. that you'll be able to hear them. Uh, but uh, the, the, the problem here uh, would seem to be that if you don't drive on the path there's only one place to go, and it's not safe on the road for an e-scooter. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, these are, are very green-friendly. Uh, there's no emissions uh, and that sort of thing, and it could be very good alternative transport for people and at the same time give us an opportunity to reduce our carbon emissions. Oh, 100%. And I do feel that, that there is a, a role for e-scooters, as, as you rightly outlined, from an environmental perspective. Um, but I, I suppose in the, in the same way that uh, we'd be urging cyclists not to be on the footpath. Cyclists share the road with the buses and the cars and things like that. Mm. We believe e-scooters should be in the same situation and for their benefit and protection that there should be minimum safety standards in terms of high vises and helmets and things that are required mm. because if the speed doesn't change and it is permitted to be at 25 kilometres an hour um, that is quite fast if you're literally you're so exposed yeah. on, a, on a scooter. Is there a ban on bicycles going on footpaths? Um, I think it's quite un- unclear in the in the legislation around bicycles. To be quite honest, I'm not 100 mm. percent sure on it. Should there um, be? But I suppose <laughs> because I see um, I, I see as many bicycles and footpaths as I do e-scooters. I think. Yeah, and I suppose we we obviously have the, the greenways and things like that, which is trying to, to promote cycling and, and mm. again increase the use of. Um, cycling and, and less use of cars and, and, and there is certainly value in all these modes of transport. I suppose what we're highlighting here is just be more mindful of individuals who are blind or vision impaired or who have a wheelchair user or a mobility need that they need the confidence to get out and about safely on the footpaths and if they are 
having um, near misses or collisions or being startled by e-scooters, um, it certainly knocks their confidence and it, it inhibits them to get out and about independently. Yeah, uh, I'm the reality. told uh, by P.O. Smith, who's just been in touch with us, P.O. is a, a local Labour Party councillor, and he says that one of the biggest issues that he gets as a councillor is e-scooters and bikes on the footpath. It drives people nuts, uh, his words, uh, June. And I, I, I think that's probably not surprising in here because we get so many messages about it from so many of our, our listeners. But all the worse uh, for the people uh, who you represent, because I think many of the people uh, who are complaining to P.O. Smith or to us in the radio station uh, at least can see the e-scooter coming at them. Correct. Yes. And I mean, I suppose if you are blind or vision impaired, it does add to it an additional layer of um, vulnerability. And certainly from the survey that we did, 77% of the respondents reported an incident on the footpath with an e-scooter. So it is quite prevalent uh, amongst people who are blind or vision impaired. Also, if you have a guide dog, um, the guide dog we've been hearing has literally stopped in their tracks because they're being disorientated by the um, e-scooter approaching them. And then the owner is wondering, why is the dog stopped? What's happened? I can't um, see. Should I be fearful of something that's happening around me. So I suppose it, as I said, it's just greater awareness of things like this is, is what's been highlighted at the minute. All right. Well, as I say, I think uh, a number of people listening to us uh, would agree with you, June, based on comments that we've uh, got in the past. And I think uh, P.O. Smith probably reflects that well in telling us what he's been hearing from people who are really driven crazy by it uh, and they're fed up with it and want something done about it. But nothing can be done about it if there aren't laws in place. And that's what you want to see happen sooner rather than later. June, thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme today. June Tinsley, Head of Communications and Advocacy with the National Council of uh, the Blind in Ireland. Some comments that have been coming to us uh, about dogs. Uh, Deirdre says uh, people need to put their dogs to keep them under control. Uh, They need to bring in laws because you just can't trust a a dog. Uh, Deirdre uh, had a very bad bite of a a dog uh, some years ago and it's not something that she'll forget anytime soon. PJ, thanks uh, for your text. Uh, Maybe I assumed wrongly uh, about uh, the dog uh, that was uh, responsible for the death of uh, that infant in Waterford that we heard uh, about uh, from uh, the inquest last week. PJ says, Michael, the dash on cross that carried out the attack on the child in Waterford would not be a tiny little dog. The standard dash hunt is a big dog on short legs. We don't know the terrier breed. Thanks uh, for that, uh, PJ. Frank in touch with us about suicide and he said one question is drug use a big factor in suicide death thanks for that Frank Uh, I think uh, the only accurate answer is that nobody knows and that uh, every individual decision to end a a life like that uh, is probably different Uh, I think it's probably also true to say that quite often uh, there will be substance use at the time, uh, whether it's drink or drugs or both or whatever, when somebody uh, does end their own life uh, and uh, whether that's because uh, they're in a crisis uh, at the time that um, they've made that decision or whether it's uh, because of the substance that they've been using, the drugs that they've been taking, as you're asking, Frank. Uh, I think uh, it's unfortunately something that we don't get the answer to um, uh, because it's too late because they've made an irreversible decision and uh, people don't get the time 
or the opportunity to speak to them again, which is uh, the terrible thing. Keep in mind, by the way, uh, if uh, you do want to contact somebody uh, who you have concerns about, Pietas House's number is open 24-7. It's 1-800-247-247. Michael Reed on LMFM. The number seeking asylum this year um, uh, has dramatically increased over previous years. I think we're close to... Uh, 14 to 15,000 um, would have sought asylum. That is separate now from the those who are fleeing war from Ukraine, where we've uh, about 75,000 people have come into the country from Ukraine fleeing war. And we can all see the, the devastation in Ukraine that has caused that massive migration of millions and millions of people from Ukraine, the bombing of civilian infrastructure, the terrible murders of the innocents um, in, in Ukraine. That's the tarnished uh, Michal Martin speaking in uh, the Dáil last week. Now, let's speak uh, about uh, the numbers coming and uh, the accommodation available to them and how it seems we're soon to run out of accommodation. John Lannan is CEO of Duras. John, thank you as always for taking the time to be with us on uh, the programme. We saw terrible scenes. I think most people will uh, agree uh, in uh, the bulletins uh, on television over the weekend of people being moved out of uh, the Red Cow Hotel to a disused church and uh, far from ideal uh, conditions. Uh, City West is about to close. It's full to capacity. We have people in tents. Uh, And uh, it seems as though we're looking at a situation where people are going to arrive in this country and be sent off with a a few vouchers and uh, find their own accommodation if that's possible. And we know that that, for the most part, won't be possible if we get to that situation. Indeed. And good morning. The situation is really worrying now because, as you say, we're we're facing the possibility that asylum seekers, and this is um, male, single male asylum seekers, um, from around the world could be left homeless without any accommodation. The standards have dropped dramatically when it comes to the reception, the accommodation of refugees over the last few months and and even more significantly over the last couple of weeks and days. We've now got people in converted warehouses and garages. We've got people in tents and, and as we said, looking at the real prospect of people being homeless. But, you know, we can and we need to do better than this. We still have moral and legal obligations to provide people with access to protection here if they if they need it and if they apply. I also see uh, that uh, the Dalkane House in Clondalkin uh, is to be closed, or at least closed uh, to housing refugees. It was housing 148 people there, but uh, Dublin Fire Brigade not happy with the fire cert. Yes, um, and and again, this is indicative of how standards are dropping because people are going into buildings that may not be suitable and it's discovered subsequently that they are unsuitable and the people are moved out at at short notice. Um, This this is very unsettling and and traumatising for people when they're being moved so, so much. We also have to bear in mind now that there's a significant number of people from Ukraine and from other parts of the world here who are seeking protection in hotels and the hospitality sector will be taking many of those beds and rooms back into tourist um, industry in the coming months. And that will mean finding accommodation for 14,000 people all of a sudden uh, come March, uh, maybe between March and April I suppose. The the numbers that um, the government need to find beds for um, is 
increasing as we go along, but there could be a significant um, increase when those um, hotel contracts aren't renewed. So we, we have a number of challenges here now. I mean, we, we do need to see a national plan to address the reception, the accommodation and the integration of refugees and to ensure that, first and foremost, we are able to provide accommodation because, as we've continued to say, you know, the crisis in relation to accommodation of refugees comes on top of an existing housing crisis we have in the country. So we need to ensure that we are, in the long term, providing accommodation for everybody on this island. But in the more immediate term, in in the very short to mid-term, we need to be looking at... um, the, the work on refurbishment and renovation of suitable unused buildings, you know, disused mm. barracks, other options owned by the states. We need to be getting the modular rapid build homes in place as a matter of urgency. Yeah. We need to make be making sure that every available viable option, whether it's large or small around the country, is brought into use. How are we doing that? I mean, Matt, when you talk about the modular homes, uh, 200 will be delivered by Easter, I understand uh, from reports, uh, and uh, that uh, 200 homes will house 800 people. Overall, there's to be 700 modular homes, uh, I think, which will give a place to call home to uh, five, 6,000 people. But we're talking about numbers way in excess of that. We, we are indeed. And, and worryingly, the delivery of those modular homes is continuing to go into the, the future. You know, there are, every, every month seems to bring another delay of, of another month and, and we appreciate the challenges that the Department of Children are facing when it comes to ensuring that those modular um, homes or, or villages are safe, that they're fit for purpose, that the community is um, prepared in terms of the other the services and the supports and the welcome they provide to refugees. But we really do need to scale up in terms of all of these options to ensure that we do continue to meet our international obligations. And that's as things stand. Uh, I saw the Minister Joe O'Brien uh, talking over the weekend uh, saying that we can probably expect as many people to come to this country this year as did last year. Uh, that would seem uh, impossible to cope with. Yeah, I mean, and and when we see this recognition from government that the numbers will continue to increase, it, it demonstrates once again that we do need an overall response that has more concerted visible leadership, there's better communication, there's a national plan with, with local decision-making because local authorities around the country um, play or should play a really important role in all of this. They're the ones that can identify the local accommodation options. They're the ones that can bring that into use um, as, as and when it needs to, to, to be done. You know, we, we need to have that central coordination. We need to have leadership. Um, we, we need to see that this is a real whole-of-government approach um, and, and that central government, local authorities are connected, communicating and engaged in this. Mm. If we don't, um, could we get to the end of the year with 50 or 100,000 people homeless? It's very worrying prospect that we could have hundreds and, and if the long term options are not put in place, thousands more people homeless here in, in Ireland because we've got to 
realise that globally the numbers of people that are being displaced is increasing dramatically. We've seen people risking their lives crossing the Mediterranean to, to get to safety. We've seen people um, doing the same in the channel from France to, to England. So we know that the inflow of people who need protection isn't going to stop. Even if we try to reduce it or try to stop people, people will still need to come to seek protection. So mm. we do need to acknowledge that, to recognise it, and to ensure that when it comes to policies, um, including and, and most particularly housing, that we have the capacity to respond. Mm. Uh, and what about people opening their doors to refugees? Uh, can more be done in that respect? You know, I, I think in, in general, and particularly with Ukraine, um, people and communities have been um, really welcoming and positive in their response. Mm. There has been quite a lot done through the schemes like with the, the Irish Red Cross, with organisations like Helping Irish Hosts, and now with the local authorities' vacant unit schemes where people can offer a vacant um, home or apartment if, if they have one and have that brought, brought into use. So I think that has been really positive and will continue to do so. Mm. That's Part of the solution as well, that and the refurbishments and the modular units, these will all play their part to ensure that we continue to welcome here people here. Because as I said, mm. communities by and large have. We've seen mm. that there have been, um, you know, crowds gathering outside um, some accommodation centres, which is really unsettling and worrying because... Um, it's quite frightening for the people in those centres, but mm. very often they're organised from outside of the community. Yeah, uh, they're, they're pure, pure, the pure evil, John. Um, on the other side of that coin, uh, when it comes to welcoming people, uh, you might be interested to know that there was... Uh, uh, great appreciation uh, for a group uh, of asylum seekers who are now housed in uh, the old Triple House restaurant in Termonfecken because they were out over the weekend working with uh, the tidy towns, cleaning up the village and getting to know local people. And I think local people were very, very enthusiastic about that and to see how they wanted to, to, to be part of the local community themselves. Absolutely, and there are fantastic examples of, of this around the country because, as I said, local communities in general want to re- welcome people who need protection and need sanctuary here. And people who arrive in Ireland, whether it's from Ukraine or it's from any other part of the world, they want to contribute. They want to become part of the new community and, and to, to live in an environment that's safe and, and that's one in where their children and they can um, progress, can can go to school and where employment can be received as well. So we know that integration can work and does work. We've seen many fine examples of it around around the country and we'll continue to to do that. All right. Uh, I see a text from somebody who's saying they're offering accommodation, uh, but uh, nobody's heeding their call. We'll uh, give that texter a a call ourselves if uh, they keep their phone on and answer our call. And uh, maybe we can get to the root of uh, that problem. But I'm sure uh, that there's still uh, some problems like that uh, along the way, John. No. Okay, I think the line must have dropped out of us there, unfortunately, but our thanks, uh, as always, to John Lannan for joining us on the programme. John is uh, the CEO of Durris. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Two petrol bombs overnight, one at St. Finian's Park in uh, Drogheda, the, the other, as uh, you've been hearing uh, through the bulletins uh, this morning, at Ahameen Park in Merheaven and Moor. 
in Dundalk. Here we go again, or did it ever really stop? There were a number of, of uh, petrol bombs over the Christmas period uh, as well. Uh, and if you were reading the Irish Times over the weekend, you'll know that this is uh, the type of intimidation that uh, drug dealers use to get money out of people. Uh, there are people who are having their houses burnt out. There's been uh, threats of raping mothers and daughters. Uh, staff in addiction services warned that violence from criminal gangs over drug debts is escalating. That's according to an article uh, that uh, was published in the Irish Times over the weekend, which Jack Power uh, talked about a video on social media which shows a man uh, with his hands bound by cable ties and tape covering his mouth. An individual leans forward and cuts the top of the man's ear off with a knife before moving to cut part of the other ear as his victim screams. Uh, The video is captioned with uh, the name of a man purportedly based in County Wicklow saying, you are next. Really vile stuff. Uh, We've seen a a lot of it before, but I I think there's probably some concern uh, that we're getting uh, petrol bombs uh, uh, again on a a regular basis locally. Let's speak uh, to Jackie McKenna project coordinator with uh, the Family Addiction Support Network, FASEN. And a very good morning to you, Jackie, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Families are being targeted uh, uh, quite often uh, when sons and daughters can't pay off what they owe to the drug dealers. Yes, yeah. Um, As you know, we were set up specifically to support family members who are experiencing harms um, associated with a loved one's substance misuse, and that includes drug debt intimidation as well. And um, uh, it leads to physical stress that can lead to ill health mentally and physically, domestic violence, financial um, burden, drug debt intimidation, as I said, and the strain of family relationships and the breakup of family relationships. So there is an awful lot going on for family members who we feel aren't getting the um, appropriate supports out there and mm. um, uh, every one of us and I keep saying this every one of us have children and grandchildren that has grown up in the now drug culture and it's not that a particular cohort of people get caught up in drugs or drug debt intimidation um, every one of us are exposed to that possibility Right. Local um, councillor P.O. Smith was telling us last week uh, at the peak of uh, the feud uh, that there was a 15-year-old at uh, the door of a house where he told the woman he would rape her if she didn't pay her children's debts. Uh, and I take it from that article in the Irish Times over the weekend that that's not unusual. Uh, and you've said that people end up owing so much money that they end up remortgaging their homes. Uh, what kind of debts are people are facing into? Well, from anything from a couple of hundred euro to um, 30,000 euro, I've heard of uh, people uh, having to remortgage their homes to break up of uh, marriages because of the strain that's on it, because of the decision. How do you make a decision? Do you pay? Do you not pay? Mm. Um, how do you... How do you heal the trauma or come to some sort of reconciliation or some sort of support 
within families, within communities, if, you know, you're faced with things like that, it's just unbelievable what mm. families are left to deal with. The reality of uh, what they have to live with on a, on a daily basis. Mm. Some, so, sometimes yeah. these petrol bombs are, are, are thrown uh, and they could kill somebody very, very easily uh, because somebody owes money that they haven't paid. Uh, there's other times, though, uh, that they're being thrown at drug dealers, drug dealers attacking drug dealers because they don't want them on their turf. Uh, they don't want uh, somebody in a house selling drugs uh, to kids in the area if um, they're taking business away from them. So they try to drive them out by using these petrol bombs. Uh, Have you seen that happen or or can you explain how that happens, that a house is attacked, uh, nearly set on fire, nearly kills somebody uh, and everybody goes, oh, my God, that's dreadful. Uh, And then, you know, the next day or the next week, they're selling drugs again in the house and maybe a month or two later, they're back attacking the house. Does anybody ever say, like, why why was that house attacked? Are, are, Are there drugs being sold in there and we should we take a closer look? Yes, um, I don't know. Uh, because of the shame and the stigma and the fear that's out there, people aren't inclined to report that. Um, and the but the guards, to, I mean, if a house is attacked, I think, you know, there's some houses that people would know why they're attacked and the guards would know, wouldn't they? Yeah, I'm sure that, that is, um, yes, that is the possibility as well that... Um, Yes, some some people are caught up in um, gangland um, gang offences or whatever, or are known to the Gardaí or whatever. Um, but it's going on all over the place. It's not just in one area. It's not just people who is known to the Gardaí. It's actually going on all over the country, not only in urban areas, but in rural areas as well. You know, I'm, I've known families who who um, were forced to sell farms of land, you know, um, mm. who has experienced um, um, being coerced into maybe paying off a drug debt for a sexual favour. You know, uh, we've done... But they've, they've done it, in other words. They've, they've had no option. They just didn't have the money. Well, I can't say... Um, but they were approached to do this. So people need to uh, be supported, Michael. They need to know. And that's why um, it, this is not a new phenomenon. This has gone on since uh, 2008, 2009, uh, when the National Family Support Network brought this up with the government and also mm. City Rights uh, Drugs Crisis Campaign in 2014, also brought up, and we also brought up, raised it up again in mm. our research in 2019. So it needs to be addressed. And I think... Yeah, and you work at the coalface and you help people through this. Yeah. And there's been an awful lot, a lot of praise for the work uh, that you and your colleagues in FASN do, predominantly voluntary work, I think, Jackie. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Vivian Geerham was one of the people who praised the work that you do. Uh, and he was asked to look at uh, the problem uh, surrounding the Drogheda drugs feud, as yeah. it was known, uh, a feud between drugs gangs in this locality stretching out to the north of the county where you are in Dundalk and into Meath and elsewhere and so on. Uh, and one of the things he suggested was that your funding be increased. I think you got a one-off payment. Did you get much more than that? And are you being funded sufficiently? We're not being funded uh, sufficiently, 
But um, over the Christmas period, we were contacted by uh, the Regional Trucks Task Force and um, uh, Calvin Monaghan HSE uh, through, sorry, through the Vivian Gearan Report and the Drive Implementation Plan, we were offered 40000 to employ uh, a family support worker for two years for the Cavan Monaghan area only. And um, our priority is to get the coordination of our regional project, which covers four counties, um, uh, funded. So that's where we will be going. It's a step in the right direction, okay. but it's certainly not adequate. And that 40000 was per year over the two years, was it? Per year of the two okay, years, Okay, yeah. right, okay. Uh, but uh, you still could do with more funding, obviously, by what you're saying, oh, from yeah. what you're saying, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because mm. um, mm. we did our business plan. We've been sending in uh, applications mm. year on year for... Uh, but there was all sorts of promises that, that that your, 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 your uh, funding problem was going to be addressed. We were we were told yeah. that very clearly after the Vivian uh, Guerin report, weren't we? Yeah. yeah. But, it, but it hasn't happened. Uh, well, there's addressed and addressed. Um, so all of 2021, we spent uh, <laughs> um, engaging or trying to engage with mm. the HSE and uh, the Minister for Drugs Res- with Responsibility for Drugs at the time, and Sophia. Mm. And uh, it ended up then in October to say that uh, we would be tendering for... Um, that they, it would go out to tender and we could submit an application. And it went out to tender on a national basis and we weren't successful in that oh. application. Um, other groups in the area that we had met with and we had agreed, um, you know, for what we wanted was the best for families within our region. So we would all put in um, an application. And what we... Uh, what uh, happened was that another, the other groups uh, came together, paid €4,000 to develop their plan and put it in. It wasn't successful. We did up ours. It wasn't successful. And it went to a national organisation. And that is one of the things that the issues that I would have mm. around tendering is that how can we smaller groups compete with um, national organisations that has um, access to uh, expertise and mm. um, so? So when they said Drogheda was going to be prioritised, it was all talk. Uh, and I know you're in Dundalk, but I mean it's all part of the Vivian Guerin report. Uh, and when they said Drogheda. Uh, they were relating to the problems in this locality, which obviously included you, because Garen recommended that your funding shortfall would be addressed. Yeah, but um, I have to say the Drought Implementation Board and the plan, um, it has done significant work in the last year that we've been um, involved mm. uh, since it took off. Um, you know, there has... That there's been massive, massive work done and interagency work done. You know, where I think that is magnificent is the interagency bit because a lot of us is working in isolation Mm. and what we need is more joined up thinking and working together. 
Okay. You know? Well, that's um, interesting also, uh, Interesting to hear because we really don't hear much uh, about that uh, implementation. So that's uh, very positive, yeah. Well, there was yeah. um, a review of the year done recently, mm-hmm. and I think that that's going to be published, published now shortly. Um, I think um, significant support has been provided to the community services, including uh, three local schools, um, that has the Jesh. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yep, Jesh. Uh, yep, 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 yeah. Yep. Uh, and youth diversion projects, um, addiction services like the Red Door and ourselves, and mm. um, um, I believe there's community centre. But it's a massive amount of work that's been done. Mm. It's not only around the drugs issue, but yeah. other departments and agencies are working collaboratively to address community concerns like... Uh, yeah, well, there's plenty of concerns. I mean, when you talk about that video, it really was a shocking thing to read uh, in, in that article in the Irish Times over the weekend. Yeah. But it, it's and nothing new. We hear about people with guns down their throats uh, and uh, guns to their head and people being yeah. shot and stabbed and beaten up and their houses burned down and all that. It's yeah. just a, a different twist, if you like. Uh, yes, and that's why we need to break that cycle of... Uh, gangland rules in communities because that's what's keeping us gripped in fear mm. and that's why the National Drive Project is has come on board now since uh, last year, June last year and the structures have been put in place but what we've done what Fossen has done uh, locally and regionally over the years is had built up a great working relationship with the Gardaí uh, around drug debt intimidation because um there's nominated inspectors uh, for each county and community guardy know the horror that mm. families are living with on a daily basis and understand where families are coming from. And sometimes families are guilty by association yeah. because they have a drug user in the family and mm. the stigma of having somebody there. So mm. they're not inclined to go looking for help or to report. And certainly not... Uh, in a position um, emotionally to report mm. because of the fear that's out there. Because we and they're, they're right, probably, to a large degree. I mean, you're not, yeah. you're not, you're not playing yeah. games yeah. here. These, these are very serious, dangerous people we're talking about. Yes, um, and mm. not only that, but the extended family and the community don't want to get involved because of the fear of reprisals on them. So you can understand where the community is in all of this. And that's why it's vital that all of the agencies and all of the um, families uh, are are supported. And that drug-related intimidation reporting mm-hmm. programme that was developed by the National Family Support Network and Angarda Shikana, that's what we've been working with over the years and it's working brilliantly. Yeah, and... and I'm, I'm sorry, Jackie, I was going to say you'll continue to work with families uh, in Fasson uh, and uh, I know that uh, it's invaluable work that you do and uh, so many people have benefited from it. Uh, it's always great to talk to you, Jackie. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Jackie McKenna, Project Coordinator with Fasson. That's the Family Addiction Support Network. Michael Reed on LMFM. You're being reminded uh, by the Irish Blood Transfusion Board uh, that uh, they are appealing uh, for 
donations uh, because there really is a shortage of blood in the country. And if you'd like to donate blood this week, you can do so at the TLT in Drogheda from today through to Thursday from a quarter to four this afternoon until eight o'clock in the evening. Uh, that's every day this week up to Thursday from uh, quarter to four to eight o'clock in the evening. Let's speak uh, to Emma Gilby, who's in Drada. And a very good morning to you, Emma. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, I know that you would like to encourage people to give blood. Yeah, good morning, Michael. And thank you for having me on the show this morning. Um, just to highlight this urgent need uh, currently for donors, um, I received a life-saving blood transfusion almost 11 years ago now, back in 2012. Um, it was after or during the birth of my son, Charlie. Um, I had a catalogue of acute complications, which um, culminated in me having a massive postpartum hemorrhage, and I lost four litres of blood. Um, so just to put that into context, mm. the human body has five litres of blood, so Ooh. it was an 80% loss of blood, um, so a traumatic injury and a traumatic situation um so only really for the quick transfusions immediately and then subsequently i had a four-hour surgery and i had um further units transfused then and indeed over the following weeks and months um i really wouldn't be here yeah. um, so i just wanted to emphasize the importance of blood donation and to appeal to any um, donors who may have donated before or for new donors to come forward also. Um, mm. It doesn't take long um, and but I know it is time out of people's days um, but I regularly think of those donors and I'm very grateful to them and my family are very grateful to them. I'm sure you are. You, by the sounds of things you wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't yeah. uh, because somebody yeah. took a decision one day to go and give blood not knowing that it would end up in your body. Exactly. Yeah. And mm. I think a lot of times when people think of a need for a blood transfusion, they maybe picture um, an accident, you know, on the, a, a car accident or something like that. But blood is used in a variety of ways. I mean, every time somebody has a surgery, there's a potential need for blood. And also, like in my case, during childbirth, unfortunately, things do go wrong. Mm. Um, and then, you know, cancer patients would be another area who would require um, another group who would require regular transfusions. Um but I would just appeal to especially, um, you, you know, younger men or like just think if it was your sister or daughter or wife in that situation, mm. you know, and if there wasn't blood available, you know, we can't even bear to think about if there wasn't mm. blood available, what but the outcome would have been. Was your situation um, unusual, Emma? It took me aback to think that you lost four out of the five litres of blood that you should have in your body. Yeah, I think it is unusual, thankfully, um, Michael, yeah. and I had spoken to um, uh, some doctors and, you know, at, I've spoken at a lot of din- awards dinners for the blood transfusion service and um, I'm always humbled actually at those events because you get to meet donors who've donated 50 or 100 donations and um, so it's, they're lovely events for me to attend and just to tell the story and express gratitude of one recipient um, on behalf of all the recipients. Um, because I'm not too sure what the figure is, but a lot of people do need um, a blood transfusion in their in their lifetime. Um, but yeah, thankfully it was rare that that happened, and it is rare to survive it. And you know, for it, it went so quickly as well. Um, but thankfully, mm. the blood donors and also the couriers, those who couriered, I had depleted the Lord's um, supply of blood. Actually, you know, after the first transfusion, because really? I continued to lose blood throughout my surgery, so more blood had to be carried from Beaumont Hospital and um, 
actually, I had said in, in previous times, I was conscious for the four-hour surgery I had after Charlie's delivery. And um, I remember actually just them talking about the need for the blood and how urgent it was and saying there was a courier on the way from Beaumont. And I was a bit just picturing that courier um, on his way with the blood and just not knowing that. Um, and the person who would have gone in to donate that blood, they may have just been on their lunch break from work or on the way home from work or, and mm. they don't realise that well, your life, your life hung in the balance. Uh, did yeah. you did you need more than four liters of blood? Yeah, I did, and um, because I they couldn't stand the bleeding during the surgery, and yeah. then I was in hospital. I was in intensive care for eight days, right. and then I did have further surgery when Charlie was eight months old. So, um, yeah, I I'm not too sure. Um, it's a long time ago now, Michael, um, and yeah. because Charlie is actually going to be eleven in two weeks' time. Excellent. Um, so mm. yeah, it's mm. um, I can't remember exactly the amount, but um. A huge volume of blood, so it would have been several donors, and um, I can never know who the exact the exact donor is. So I mm. just give a, de- a general um, thank you, and Very I'm good. so grateful to them, yeah. and so indebted. Yeah. And um, just please, please, if you can at all, um, go on to the GiveBlood.ie website and see check your elig- eligibility. Um, there's a few situations that might prevent them even temporarily if you've had some foreign travel, etc. But mm-hmm. that wouldn't mean you couldn't donate the next time around. So okay, um, well, you can do it in the TLT today uh, and uh, through uh, to uh, Thursday from a quarter to four up to eight o'clock in, in the evening. I take it 11 years on since giving birth uh, and the traumatic experience uh, that followed that both you and Charlie are well now. We're, we're great now, um, good, good. Michael, yes, and, and he has a little sister, Victoria Rose. I better give her a mention or I'll be in trouble. Um, so Very he's good. seven, and yeah, they're great, all good, and um, and looking forward to his big birthday now in, in two weeks' time. Very so, good, um, thank but we, you. We, but we think, of, we think of the donors every day, yeah. as does Charlie, and um, he'll be the first in the line there on his 18th birthday. Thank you very much indeed, Emma Gilby. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.